Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I got to speak with Katie Noregard of Miss Katie Sings. I'm Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Bullets. Episode 7, Music Education, Part 1. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for getting a chance to just talk with you a little bit about education, music, and the work that you do with children. And um, I'm just, I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. Of course. Yeah. Um, well, before we get started, I guess I should, uh, you know, kind of introduce you a little bit. This is Katie Noregard of Miss Katie Sings, and um, you work with children kind of all over the world, right? Yeah, all, all over. I mean, predominantly in North America, I would say, but I know that I have viewers kind of all over. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And has it kind of grown since COVID and everything? <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. came from COVID, actually. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. So prior, before being quarantined, um, I was teaching children and family music, Yeah. Um, but only in person. And it wasn't even my full-time thing. I was really trying to do singer-songwriter stuff for adults. Sure. Um, and I wasn't primarily focused on children, but I loved working with kids. And I've worked with kids in, in so many different capacities, yeah. um, whether it was you know, babysitting or nannying or running after school programs um, and just being very involved in that way. And since I was a musician, people have been like, what if you do, you know, music for, for kids? And, oh, yeah. um, and I, I had always been a little unsure whether kids would respond to my style of music, which is very indie folk and quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like launching into my origin story. No, no, story. go for it. I'm okay. here for it. Yeah. Yes. So basically, I um, I was teaching a class. And then when we went into lockdown, I had this random thought of, you know, knowing that we'd be out for at least two weeks. Yeah. At least two weeks. <laughs> um, and then thinking, you know, for a lot of these kids that I've worked with, that consistency is so important. And yeah. so to all of a sudden have their routine you know, disrupted is, is hard for kids, um, hard for everyone. Yeah. And so I had an idea just to film a 20 minute video of me doing essentially what I would do in a class. Um, but with things that I had around the house. So like, I didn't have a drum, I didn't have a shaker. So I just used a bucket. I filled a little container with rice, which I I still use now for my shaker actually. Um, yeah, and I, I made this video, and I, I sent it just to the families that I taught to say, like, here's something that your kids can keep coming back to just while we're away. Yeah. But then I had put it on YouTube, and so it started circulating, and people were sending it to others, and uh, 
folks just wanted more. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. And I love that you did it with like household things. Yeah. Um, I work with young families and that Mm. is one of the biggest obstacles that new parents experience is, um, well, my child wants to play with this thing that's not a toy. Okay. Mm. Well, yes, there are safety, you know, things to keep in mind uh, regarding safety, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be a toy. Like we mm. can implement anything and, and we'll do similar things. We'll make shakers out of like toilet paper rolls and, you know, yeah. all these different things that we can utilize. And it makes, I think it makes, it helps kids and parents have more agency in that. Like mm-hmm. I want to do this, but oh no, it seems too scary. And mm. to see that that's possible can really bring a sense of, ah, I can do that too. To the child yeah. and to the parent. Yeah. And I just think the like accessibility to music, because yeah. sometimes we think of like, you know, you want your child to learn how to play the piano or mm-hmm. play, you know, maybe an instrument that costs kind of a lot of money to have an initial investment in. Yes. And so to be like, even from a young age, music can be from anything and from yeah. everywhere. And so how can you access that and take ownership over it in that way to like make music however you want to? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. And, and you're so right with the accessibility piece. I mean, I remember when our kids first started getting to the age of, you know, we were thinking about like, Oh, well this is about the age that we started taking music lessons and Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing and for me it was piano and Mm -hmm. um and (laughs) my daughter wanted to play violin and my son Mm -hmm. wanted to play cello and I was like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) so we we went and we rented the instruments and we paid Mm. for the lessons and like I'm I loved their teachers Okay, first Mm. of all, they were worth every penny that we paid them. Mm. But at the same time, it wasn't feasible for the kind of income that we had. And so we just couldn't make it work. And so we had to end lessons after a couple of years and Mm. kind of put those things away. And the instrument rental and all of that combined was so expensive. And then we were like, what if we try this again? And we try this on a much more like doable scale with instruments Mm -hmm. that we already have in the house. And we just start kind of letting them explore with these instruments and decide what they'd like to learn. And our daughter decided piano and our son decided ukulele. Perfect. Mm -hmm. I already had both of those. A piano was just randomly given to me. I didn't have a working piano and someone reached out and was like, do you want this piano? I have to get rid of it to make room for a new piano that I'm getting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that. Um, And it it worked out beautifully. And Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we were able, thankfully, to find a friend who teaches music lessons and our kids take music lessons from them um, virtually. But then now that exploration has led them to... um, I think the way that we approached it, which sounds a lot like the way that you approach it, is uh, just kind of letting kids explore with music, giving them the sense that they can try out different things. And now they do that more. My son, who takes ukulele lessons, 
is teaching himself piano and he mm. sounds beautiful and it's, it's the you know our daughter like is trying out other things like percussion and um just mm -hmm. with whatever she can find around the house yeah. and they have so much fun with it and they're so much more interested mm -hmm. and they enjoy it and so they'll do it for fun and it's less mm -hmm. of uh you have to practice at this time yeah. for this many minutes and more of a let's make music because we want to make music mm -hmm. and so i love that thought about accessibility and making it something yeah. because music should be for everyone right mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and that's that's like how i got started too is our neighbor was getting rid of their piano oh. um, and gave it to us when we were kids um and, and I did take some piano lessons when I was very young, but for the most part, I, I wasn't trained in any instrument outside of that. So mm -hmm. I took piano lessons for a little bit and then I stopped. And then when I, but we had always had like things, musical sort of tools and instruments around the home, nothing mm -hmm. very expensive, but like sticks or some sort of percussive yeah. um, thing. And then when I was in seventh grade, I taught myself the guitar mm. and that became my main instrument. I mean, at the time I wasn't even, I didn't consider myself much of a singer even, which is so mm, funny because now I funny. feel like that's, that is, that's my, my job. <laughs> um, so yeah. And it just, it was something that it was on my own sort of like schedule and pacing and just, I was teaching it to myself and, and really, fell in love with that kind of exploration. Yeah. Oh, that is so wonderful. Um, I started on piano too and like taught mm. myself different instruments um, over, over time. And yeah, just having the freedom to do that was huge. It was, it was incredible um, to, to just try new things and then to like see other children doing that is mm. so beautiful um and so wonderful and uh it has it has led us to kind of like my kids have like opinions about music now like they have mm. like their own preferences in music yeah. that they would like to listen to and my son has a favorite band and it's so funny because mm. that's not something that I necessarily expected at their age because they are so young um, well, I guess they're kind of growing up now, <laughs> but that's what happens, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> grow and grow. Um, but I didn't expect my eight year old to have like a favorite band. Do you know what I mean? Um, I didn't expect him to be devastated when they broke up <laughs> because he'll never get to see them in concert. Um, <laughs> and all oh. these cool things that like they really do use music in, um, such a huge way it, it means so much to them in their life and I see that in other families and with other kids and um and yeah I just I love that I, I think that it's something that it's a beautiful gift that you can share with the world that you're able to that it has turned into such a, a far-reaching thing for you yeah. that's so cool it's unreal yeah I, I'm I'm constantly so I'm so grateful and so surprised in many ways that I am able to do everything that I do now, partly because um, 
I, I'm not like academically trained in anything that I really am doing now for my job. Yeah. Um, so when I think like for me to be someone who never took guitar lessons, singing lessons, um, never studied music theory in a school setting, yeah. um, and never, um, yeah, just like all these things that make it seem like I, sh- I shouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now, but to, but to be in this position to be like, I, you know, I teach music, I write songs, I film videos, I do shows, um, is it like, is, I don't know if, if the word is like healing. I think in some ways it's healing, but it feels just so validating to be like, you don't have to have one specific trajectory in order to get to what you want to do. Um, and there are these like possibilities and these nuances and that is just, that's so exciting for me. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So if, is it okay if you share a little bit about, um, kind of identities that you hold Mm -hmm. and how that influences the way that you, um, experience music, teach music, or, or teach other things through music. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, we all have so many identities. I have a lot Mm -hmm. of identities. I, um, I'm Asian American. I'm biracial. That influences Mm -hmm. my work in, in so many ways. I'm a cisgender woman. I am, I, I think the word that I come back to a lot in terms of identity is like, I'm a neighbor. I'm a community member. Like, um, and I think maybe not more than anything, but in a large way that shapes my work. Yeah. And so, um, as for my, like the, uh, the identities that jump out to me first, I think about how, um, growing up being a, a biracial child in a time where I didn't know really any other biracial family, especially Asian, Asian American families or Asian and Caucasian. I, I just happened to not really live in an area where I met a lot of kids, Mm -hmm. um, who were mixed. And so growing up with both cultures being really, um, prominent in my life sort of shaped my thinking as like someone who feels like a a bridge person in many ways. So like connecting with different communities or sort of straddling these two different identities or lives in that way. And so I think even in my work now, I care a lot about being that type of a bridge person or connecting communities or, um, yeah, introducing things maybe in a way that doesn't feel as clean cut. Yeah. Um, so that, that is one way that I see it sort of manifesting. Um, I, and, and then, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about identities in in so many different ways, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot about how, especially as an educator, you know, we all bring in our, our biases and our perspective and our um, world views. And so I think about how the identities that I hold shape those 
things in ways that are conscious and unconscious. So like, sure. When I, when I think about the identities that I hold to that I name the quickest, typically they are identities that are a little bit more marginalized. And that's why I think of them because, um, it feels like a part of me that, that not everyone necessarily shares or or a part of me that like goes unnoticed. And so I think of it and in, in that way, it can be really, um, great because I can think like, I don't see very much, you know, Asian American representation in, in schools or how we, um, educate with like what curriculum we use or, um, and so I think of it in that way. And then I think about identities that I hold that are part of the sort of more majority culture and how I can, if I'm not being intentional, those identities also shape how I educate and teach and interact with folks, but in a way that's like left with a a bias. Mm. So I'm trying to think of a good example, but like, um, even like I am, I, I'm, I'm neurotypical. And so maybe the way that I am speaking with kids and interacting and the rules that maybe I have in a classroom may in my mind, um, because of my identity may be something that I am not really realizing is like not the best way for everyone to learn. And that, um, how can I be supporting neurodiverse, you know, children that are in my classroom or like things like that, where identity just shapes so much of of how we do everything in work and in life. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely does. Uh, and I think that that's I, something that you said is really wonderful and, and reminds me of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> you like, <laughs> you're reminding me a lot of Mr. Rogers. Um, <laughs> Thank you. you know, oh yeah. Um, the, the identity of being a neighbor and wanting mm-hmm. to, you know, leave biases behind um that's something that's really difficult to do for for everyone uh but I think especially when we're working with kids because Mm. children don't have the same kind of I guess vocabulary and expressiveness that because they're not fully cognitively developed and they don't have all of those means of expressing themselves and so leaving behind biases when working with children is really difficult but so so critical right in the way that we interact with them Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely well and I just think about how much I think the idea of like leaving biases behind has to be so um, intentional because otherwise something I think about a lot is the idea of um, no space being truly neutral. And so sometimes people think that um, biases mean, you know, that means that we're uh, actively putting something into the space that wasn't there. We're actively choosing to treat children a certain way or interact with this person a certain way. Um, Versus realizing that like we we're always in a state of having biases and we're always in a state of having these perspectives. And so for us to like even leave them behind is a very conscious, intentional decision because we have to recognize it, know that it's problematic and then figure out how to put it aside. Mm, Yeah, yeah. 
and that is hard work and and um gosh and I I just love that so much I just I keep going back to I don't remember if it was Mr. Rogers first episode or or just one of the early ones but um what you're saying reminds me a lot of the Mr. Rogers episode when he um interviews a young boy who uses a wheelchair mm. and he's disabled and they start talking about his disabilities and yeah um but it's and you know so beautifully done that mm. Mr. Rogers and the, and the way that you're describing it too that like he examines it on screen with this child he examines his own biases and he you know, says, you know a lot about these things. I never, I would never know about these things. And I don't know about that. And you know so much. Um, And I I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to do in front of children and with children. Mm -hmm. Because if they see us doing that, then maybe they'll do it too as they grow up. Yes. Yeah, I think so much about the idea of the adult being the the person with knowledge and the person who um, understands how everything works. And I think for children, it's important to for them to see adults not knowing, but be comfortable in that not knowing. Yeah. Um, and for adults to go to children as the experts or as knowledge bearers, mm. because that, and, and I mean, that's something I think about a lot in anti-bias education and in like decolonizing practices and all of that, where it's like the idea of a very teacher centric space yeah. can be problematic and, and makes students rely very hev- like heavily on educators or heavily on adults. Mm. Um, and not realize how much they have to contribute, you know, as as young people and even with the knowledge that they know and the culture that they bring in and their experiences, even from a really young age, they they can contribute and they can do that, which I yeah. think is yeah, Mr. Rogers modeled that well in asking going to that child, I think Jeffrey Erlinger is his name, I going to so, him yeah. and asking, yeah, and 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 asking, like, how does this work? Show me how you do this. Like I'm learning from you. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, a necessary practice in a in a classroom too. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And actually I as you're speaking, it's making me think, um, you know, it's not just about whether we are modeling this so that they can use it as adults, but also just for validating them as people now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. We could talk about that for a really long time. I know. I, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll probably have to circle back. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. So many thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, so um, when you were a child and when you were, you know, in the education system as a student, as a kid, Uh, What was that like for you? And and did you experience a whole lot of that, like validation and Mm -hmm. um, adults coming to you as as foreknowledge that you had knowledge? I think in a school setting, I I don't know of many times where I feel like I really experienced that outside of maybe like joining clubs at school. And I, and I love, I love that too, because so many of them are, are very student 
run mm. um, and student led. And I think that's where you have space to kind of play and lead and create. Um, yeah. And those, I was always really involved in so many different clubs. And I, I found that to be, you know, at the time I was joining them because they were fun and I was interested. And I think yeah. now when I look back, I realize how validating and important that was to have responsibility in that way. But within the classroom setting itself, it's hard for me to think of something that really comes to mind. I mean, I know that like when we're young, we have like show and tell and and things like that where you're getting to present. And of course, as we, you know, getting older and writing papers or doing oral presentations. Um, I think for me specifically, I mean, I grew up in a pretty predominantly white school. I always had like kind of these two communities I was really involved in. So school was... I think there was maybe there was definitely one other biracial Asian American woman who or a girl, I guess, at the time we were younger mm-hmm. um, in my school. Yeah. And but I didn't know of many others. And I definitely tried to like assimilate. And I had those experiences of like going to the lunchroom and having a lunch that people were making fun of or mm. like little memories that I still hold on to of of being a kid and us learning something about um, Chinese culture that was a little like. I mean, we do this a lot in schools where we present on other cultures, but in a way that feels very like exotic and interesting, Mm. but like maybe that kids don't always connect with and they'll be like, that's weird. Or like it elicits such a strong response because it's meant to be like, look how different this practice is. Mm. Um, And so I remember feeling just like not great about myself and, and, um, and, and having that growing up. So I had that in the school, in a school community where I was definitely trying to like assimilate and then on the other hand, my family um, attended a predominantly, it was a Chinese church. And so we were the only, I think actually the only family that had um, white family members mm. um, and then biracial kids yeah. in in the church. And so, and those were like, I was super involved. So those were my friends. That was my community. These were people I was seeing like multiple times a week. Um, and yeah, but, and sort of like, I don't know if it was quite code switching, but like, feeling a different way in both those spaces. And so sure. I think my school though felt very, I don't remember learning and celebrating, I mean, Asian Americans specifically, um, or like learning history and culture um, of Asian Americans in the classroom setting. And so, yeah. Uh, and then, and then the added layer of being like biracial or multiracial, where it's like I'm really not seeing myself, because like that is a that's also another experience is, is feeling a little out of place mm. in that way. Yeah, in multiple ways. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so how did that how did that sort of impact your view of education and teaching and the way that we all learn and did it change you then? Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think it like was a slow, uh, a slow ad- adjustment or add up or adapting? Um, how did that impact you? Yeah. At the time I didn't, I wasn't thinking very critically about it. I was just like, this is how I feel in this space. And therefore I will change to feel more comfortable. I wasn't thinking about like, how can we reimagine education or how right. can we like, <laughs> um, at that time. And I'm sure there are plenty of young people who, who maybe do that. And I, I was focused more on the present, I think, at that time in yeah. relation to me. Um, as I've 
grown older and really come to appreciate and like cherish my heritage and my many identities, I have, yeah, I have a lot more thoughts now. Um, I think I work with such young children. I'm mostly with preschoolers Yeah, that I think a lot about how do we, um, I don't, is facilitate the right word? Yeah. I mean, like, how do we facilitate an understanding and appreciation of, of diversity and inclusion and, and all of these things within a classroom? So not necessarily telling kids what to think, but being there as like a supportive guide to where it, like, if you start to see like, oh, kids are using this to like bully or using this and, you know, how do we help them rethink this or become more critical uh, considering, you know, what, what we're learning. And so one thing that stands out to me, I mean, I guess just even in talking about having this experiences of, um, people pointing out, you know, maybe Chinese traditions that felt a little bit more out there and kids not being able to connect is like, yeah, how do we talk about, uh, how do we introduce racial diversity? How do we introduce cultural diversity? Um, and do that in a way that it feels really fluid so it's not just like this one time of the year we're talking about all these wild things that mm. like are happening over there in this country you know yeah um but to be like uh because oftentimes I think especially in celebrations like when we're celebrating a holiday that's when we really go hard into like these are the costuming or like these are the traditional dresses and these are like and um and of course like those are all cultural pieces that are important and for for a child to see like oh a Chinese person could look like this wearing a very traditional, you know, outfit or a Chinese person could look like this wearing like, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and like, yeah. and, and, and then also, you know, and then the added layer of like, if they're, you know, Chinese Americans and how, you know, that could be different. Um, so I, I think about how we introduce, um, figures and, and stories and, cultures into our space and also obviously like with the students and the community that we're already in and already have um there was one thing I was gonna say oh one thing I think about a lot is uh, this is my my current sort of understanding of of this practice and I am open to it evolving and maybe finding a better way but something that I have been thinking a lot about is not just introducing one thing as different. So not just being like, um, a recent example, we, we've been doing this song about dumplings mm. in my class. Um, and I was talking about chopsticks and I was like, I could introduce chopsticks as like, here's this one thing we're going to talk about today. There are these things called chopsticks. Have you seen them? Have you used them? Mm -hmm. Showing pictures. Um, another way I could do it is like, being like, hey, we all use so many different things to eat. Like, what's something you use when you eat your food? Mm. Um, and then some kids are like, forks, spoons, knives, like eat with my hands, you know, um, eat with chopsticks. And then you're kind of, you're not othering one thing. You're basically saying there are many expressions of how to live life and how to yeah. look, how to be, what your family looks like, how you, all of these different things. Um, and make that sort of the like unifying basis where we can appreciate and celebrate the diversity of 
of how we're, we're the same, but in different ways. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I, I keep coming back to. I love that. I love that. And uh, I think how amazing would that be if it was something that was more, that things were more commonly approached that way, right? Um, in in spaces where there are disabled children, in spaces where there are, uh, you know, neurodivergent children, like so many different things. Yeah. Um, I would love to see that be, you know, the, I guess, standard approach or... Mm-hmm. Again, like it's possible for things to evolve further. I don't know what the evolution of that would be, but <laughs> but I I love that so much. I would love to see that happening more in education, mm-hmm. and I love that you do that with the kids that you work with because um, how validating and how wonderful mm-hmm. it must be for them to just like have that sense of normalcy like oh well I use this and actually I yeah. use that and you know oh I drink from a cup and but I use a straw or I use yeah. you know this other type of um of cup like a almost like a sippy cup or anything mm-hmm. like that especially at that age because children get accustomed to like their ways of doing things mm-hmm. and, and I mean we do too as adults but um, children often have like their comfort thing, yeah. you know, like whether it's a particular blanket or right. uh, something has to always be this way. Um, mm-hmm. And that's comforting to them. Yes. And, and that's wonderful. Yeah. But how amazing to let them see that other kids have their own ways of doing things. Yeah. And, and I think especially because when you're young, you're trying to make sense of the world and so it's way easier to put things into boxes because you're like this is what I've learned this is what makes sense to me and so to expand that not not to say that they don't know anything but the idea of like you know what you know and um and how can you like stretch that a little bit more to see how how others are doing things in a similar so maybe like maybe your stuffed animal at home is an elephant. And so you understand like, this is a a, a thing that's comforting to you that you have with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe not every kid has an elephant. Maybe they have a different stuffed animal or maybe they use a blanket instead of a stuffed animal. But like being able to be like the, the unifying concept is like, we all have these things that are, that make us feel safe and comfortable that we love and, and go to. And like, those can be different for different people, but we have that similarity. And so how do we stretch that out for everything else? Like the color of our skin, you know, like the things we like to do or don't like to do. I I do this song a lot in my class where it's like, raise your hand. And it's essentially like, I'll sing like, raise your hand if you like, you know, apples or like, raise your hand if you like to swim or, you know, whatever it is. And then you see not everyone raises their hand for different things. And we can and we talk about those sort of groupings of like, okay, not everyone said that they liked, I don't know, like spinach or broccoli mm-hmm. or something, but we're talking about foods and, and we all like food in, in a yeah. different way. And yeah. like, um, and I think opening them up to that at a young age and being like, and helping to facilitate that understanding of like, it's great that there are so many different ways to be a person and mm. knowing that those foundational things will carry with them because we, we, you know, we've learned that children, um, 
they grow biases or they not, not grow. That makes it sound like it's something they inherit a lot of biases because of the way that they see the world around them. So it's not even just a parent outright saying something that is like destructive and bad. Um, but it's like them watching how their parent, like when their parents lock the door, when they're around people, like how, you know, um, when, if a parent, if a child walks past somebody using a wheelchair and points it out and the parents like, Shh, don't talk about that. Like uh, knowing like, Oh, is this something that's bad? Is this yeah. something I like shameful, mm-hmm. you know? And so instead to be like, how can we, especially then knowing our biases, because mm. it's, it's hard. It's so, it's such hard work to yeah. not only recognize our biases, but then be like, how do we push against that? Cause that's going to feel unnatural for us in a world that's been socialized a certain way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it does feel so bizarre. Like, so especially for me and I, I mean, I think about the, the example of someone who like going by who uses a wheelchair and, um, I grew up with a grandma who used a wheelchair and I thought they were, you know, I, I knew that younger people used them, but I thought they were like mainly for older people, mainly mm. for, you know, the elderly. And, <laughs> and yeah, um, most of the time when I saw a younger person who used a wheelchair, uh, my parents would like shush me or be like, don't, mm. don't look at, don't stare at them. Don't look. I was, I wasn't staring. I was just noticing. Yeah. Um, that that person has a wheelchair it's so much more about the discomfort of the adults than it is actually protecting the child it's like you you either don't as an adult don't want to be seen a certain way or you feel uncomfortable so you Mm. don't want your child to like bring out this thing that's going to make you feel uncomfortable or make someone else feel uncomfortable too but like you know for kids it's rarely malicious they're just learning about the world and they're so curious yeah Absolutely. And I remember my son, I think he was seven or eight at the time. I can't remember. Um, He's eight now. So I can't remember if it was this year or a year ago, or it had to have been pre-pandemic because we saw people then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I remember walking um, out of a building with uh, another kid that he knows. And he said something about... um, that kid has ADHD. And I instantly was like, Shh, don't say that. Like, don't talk mm-hmm. about that. And he was like, why? He does. And yeah. The other mm. child's mom was there. And she said, no, it's fine. He can like he does have ADHD. It's OK. And I was like, oh, oh. Right. Why am I bothered by acknowledging that? Mm. What about that makes me feel like I was so um, worried about that mm-hmm. being brought up. Um, and I realized it was because I don't I, I didn't know anything really about it. Yeah. And it made me feel uncomfortable that I didn't know mm-hmm. something. And what if my son asks me a question and I don't know yeah. the answer to it? And or what mm-hmm. if this other mom is offended and... Yeah. Um, you know, and then I have to deal with that. And it was Mm -hmm. so much more about my comfort than it was about him at all, anything about him. Um, Mm. And I, I think that, you know, in that moment, that other mom really 
taught me something that like oh actually it's fine if I don't know everything yeah and yeah hmm. um how much differently we can we can work like talk to our kids yeah and I think that's such a like reassuring thing for adults because I worry that when adults feel like they're supposed to know everything then then sometimes people will just not quite make up things, but make up their mind quickly to have an opinion to be like, I, you know, or are get so defensive and scared about not knowing that they dismiss something or they push it away. Mm. Um, but I think if we introduce this idea of like lifelong learning, we're all learning and to share that with children and be like, I don't know that much, but like, let's see if there's a book about this we can read together. Yeah. Or like, I think sharing that journey is so good instead of feeling responsible to be the one who knows everything before having a child mm-hmm. and like before you know whatever any of that yeah. um and and I think I think of that for adults and any caregivers and I think of that for teachers because we think so much of like teachers are the ones with the answers they're literally oh, yeah. educating children and yeah. they are and you know and teachers don't know everything I'm like I think for me to be like wow we're all like, we really, we're still learning a lot. There's yeah. so much that teachers don't know. And I'm saying yeah. teachers as a, obviously a very broad thing, but like, um, and, and if we are okay with, of course, doing the work and trying to learn as much as we can, and then inviting others into that, like that will be even, I think that could be a really powerful thing for kids to be like, oh, I'm able to contribute I can learn something and share that with others yeah um the and that being like a very even like community oriented thing like we're all learning together in this way and I think Mm. that's so great yeah yeah well and it gives us the opportunity to have honest conversations with other people outside of a Mm. more academic setting too to just ask people questions just learn about who they are um and then to also give them and ourselves the agency to say, oh, I don't want to talk about that right now. Definitely. And that it just gives everyone so much more freedom to Mm -hmm. decide when and how they want to talk about things. Um, Yeah. And could make for a much healthier world, I think. Yeah, Um, and just thinking, like, there are so many great resources out there. There's so much in the world. So even for for children not you know yes being like encourage asking questions and all that but also be like there are so many ways we can learn about this we can watch you know maybe watch a a movie or a story about this or read a book about this or listen to a talk or you know and I guess instead of saying or like and you know ask questions but um because I know there's definitely been this like wave of like we want to learn you know as a society people being like we want to learn more um, teach me, tell me, like, mm. let, like, yeah. you know, and then be yeah. like, okay, you can Google this. You yeah. can, there's so much that's out there <laughs> in the world that we, yeah, to not put the burden of learning on other people, but to mm. just be proactive and, and take yeah. that into our hands in that way. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point because it is something, especially in, you know, uh, like my circles, basically white circles, like, sure it's something that we do um and 
so <laughs> so my husband is biracial um mm. and white passing but um when when our kids have questions about their heritage and i'm i a lot of times in the beginning i would just go to my husband i would just go to nick and be like hey what is this or, or like mm-hmm. i don't know what this is yeah, or, yeah, yeah. hey do, 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 do. um and it was like i could over time um someone pointed out to me like hey maybe that's not his favorite thing to do and i was mm-hmm. like oh you're you're right <laughs> he probably yeah. doesn't love that I always come to him with these questions I'm sure he doesn't always mind because these are his children and it's part of his life but if I don't know the answer to something um first of all how very presumptuous of me to assume that he just automatically knows this um because not every it's not like a homogenous experience exactly uh, I think that's I think that's such a good understanding is such a good thing to explain to children too is like we're not a monolith and even even cultural communities are not a monolith and even you know yeah and just you can hear one person's experience but like someone else might have a different experience Mm. um and I think on one hand there is that like we want everything I, I keep saying we, and I always want to be careful about that because like, who am I actually talking about when I say we? <laughs> so I'll say, for, I'll, well, just because like sometimes, you know, yeah, I, mean? I know like, what you mean. No, um, I do. But like, even for myself being like, I, I like to know something and then have it in this box of knowing. And mm. so then I can move on to the next thing, but to be like, oh, wait, here's something that feels almost like the opposite of what I'm learning. And, and how do I reconcile? And just being like, that's okay. What to have a fluid space of, of knowledge and mm-hmm. of evolution and growing and all that and just yeah. not making it and just to be like this world is expansive in a beautiful way yeah um and not to try to constrict it so that we can make sense of it mm. yeah yeah which is something that we desperately want to do as human beings, I think. Like we want oh, yes. everything to be categorized and standardized and cuz mm-hmm. it makes it's what our brains long for. Um but if we can or I guess probably some brains, probably not all brains really. Sure. Yeah. Um but if we can allow ourselves you know in the beginning probably the discomfort of saying it's different and I don't understand that and that's fine. Um, Or I can work to understand it, but it's not necessarily going to fit in a category Mm -hmm. anywhere. And that's just fine. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I mean, I even think back to like college, especially in college, I wanted everything to be very like, you know, answer A, B or C. And that is, that is the answer because it felt Mm -hmm. comforting and it felt safe. But often kids are not satisfied with that. Like, yes, they want consistency. Yes, they want routine to a degree and they want Mm -hmm. to that feeling of like safety and security. But at the same time, they're not always satisfied with a yes or no or an A, B, or C answer. They they know intuitively that it's bigger than that. And they have more questions. And they're not okay with something being categorized all the time. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it okay to ask a little bit about, um, I guess, kind of your perspective on decolonizing um, education? And, and or, or like whether on an individual level, a systemic level, um, anything and, and kind of your perspective on, you know, if we do want to change our approach to education to something that is decolonized, something that is anti-racist, something that is truly um, equitable, mm. then what is your perspective on like, on, on how we can make that a, a key part of our approach to education? Yeah, I mean, there are so many different parts. I, I guess when I first think of that question, I think about um, how can we always question um, what is quote unquote like typical or normal for a school setting? So I think starting from a place of curiosity and inquiry instead of creating things based on whatever the foundation is. So mm. um, I mentioned this before, the idea of there not being truly a neutral space is the idea of when you look at a classroom, even physically looking at the classroom, um, how is it set up? Like, mm. where are the students sitting? Who are they facing? Um, and how does that lend itself to what is happening in, in the classroom? Yeah. So even from a base level like that, who's doing most of the talking in a classroom? Who's the one who's holding all the knowledge? Yeah. Um, so the idea of inviting students and learners to be active participants in a way that's like, I think for so much is um, determined by teachers. I think like mm. it really is so wild to me to think about the influence of teachers. I mean, not only how many hours of the day that they spend with kids, but like, I think one of the um, best ways to create a more equitable classroom is for teachers to be working on their own biases. Mm. Um, because people don't realize how much they bring that into the class. Yeah. In every way. I remember I watched this phenomenal video and I wish I could remember it right now. But um, there was basically this uh, filmed class and the teacher, uh, it was like they were doing a math lesson. Hmm. And someone, um, this video was being shown at like a, a lecture yeah. And so they watched the video and then the educator who was at the front of the um, crowd was like examining things happening in the video in the classroom. Mm. And basically in the span of like one and a half minutes of a classroom time, uh, seeing how like 20 biases came out from the teacher's perspective or the way that wow. they interacted with students. Yeah. And, and that idea of like the way that teachers or any adults, but especially in this setting, the way that teachers perceive what's happening by students um, is then converted into how they respond to students, yeah. which then is converted into how students feel about themselves, how students feel about their classmates. So 
I mean, even just looking at like, statistically speaking, black children especially are punished more severely for the same actions or the same behavior as mm -hmm. white children. Yeah. And so when you think about like growing up and being socialized in a society that is racist, that has systemic racism, all of these things, um, and knowing that uh, that is like the posture that especially that white Americans have in this space, but just all the prejudice, like prejudices and uh, sort of discriminatory, you know, thoughts that we have in, in our, in our own head or folks have in their own head is like, how, how are you perceiving what's happening? Um, especially when it's a student of color, especially when it's a black student, like, how are you, um, are you, based on your preconceived notions, are you already interpreting something as being more aggressive, as being more disruptive? Um, and when you know that about yourself and when you you say, like, I'm going to have a posture um, towards my students as, like, I don't know, like, they're all, like, curious and they're just trying to learn. How can that translate um, even into like how I treat them, you know? So for example, I think so much, I'm going so many different directions, but no, something I love I think it. about a lot is, <laughs> it's like the idea of, um, expectations, agreements, and sort of like this common sense rule book that we may have where, um, for example, if, if, uh, if I'm reading a story um, to a class and one kid just keeps on like talking or keeps on like pointing out things in the picture, I might mm -hmm. in my head be like, this child is being disruptive. Like they shouldn't be talking while I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. And then you have to take a step back and be like, did I ever make that? A, is that an expectation? Is that an agreement that we've made in the classroom that like while I'm teaching or while I'm reading, no one is going to talk. You're not supposed to talk, you know, like, and when you have this sort of like, defensive like this this child isn't listening like they need to sit in the corner they need to go to the principal's office like they're you know and then be like oh actually if you shift this and you really take a step back like is this child being maybe the most engaged because they're paying yeah. attention they're caring about what's going on they're like pointing things out asking a lot of questions so how do you as a teacher rethink how you're interpreting behavior i think that's one of the biggest things um and yeah, the idea of like inviting students into uh, taking like a very active role in the classroom. Um, I remember reading this sort of a case study that was done. Um, and I, it was about um, a class that wanted to take a field trip to this nature preserve. Mm -hmm. And a new student had joined the classroom who uses a wheelchair. And the teacher called ahead of time to be like, hey, one of our students uses a wheelchair. Um, is it accessible or like, is there something for this student to do? And the park was like, yeah, it should be fine. They show up and um, realize that there were like some signs on the trails that's like, basically it's not it's not accessible like mm. and for safety concerns like they actually don't want wheelchairs on here they don't want um like yeah 
any sort of mobility aid on those paths. So the option is like you could um, watch a, a movie about nature and they had like a little pavilion or whatever. And, and the students that couldn't go on that path would watch this video as a separate sort of activity. Mm. And there were these questions after this case study to be like, what do you do? What should the teacher do? Um, mm. And I was thinking about this a lot and I was talking with some other educators about this. And I think our gut reaction especially being based in like a Western society is like, okay, the teacher is in charge of like making a big decision. What's going to happen? Like, is the, is everyone going to go home? Are we going to do these separate groups? How's this going to work? Right. And then to think like, oh, how could this be an opportunity to invite students in? Like, what if we like sat everyone down and we're like, Hey, this is the situation They're like, well, I mean, even full well, first, like going to the student who uses a wheelchair and being like, what are you comfortable with? What's good? And then also to go to the students and be like, this would have to happen in order for everyone to stay and do the field trip. What do you think about that? And maybe the kids would be like, well, we want to stay together. Like, it's not fair or like, that's yeah. not okay. And then being, you know, if it's like, should we <laughs> go home and then write letters or like make mm. calls and be like, this isn't fair. There needs to be more accessibility. This isn't okay. Mm. Or do we all watch a video or do we all find another activity to do so that it can be inclusive of everyone? And I think sometimes we forget and we think we need to make all these decisions for kids. And I'm not saying that we need to bring them into like a lot of heavy stuff all the time and be like, they're responsible for big things are hap that are happening. But I think to know that they are capable of having an opinion, of having a solution. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that we can encourage them to question things, have curiosity and have, I mean, they're already curious by nature, so it's not something we need to instill, but to support that yeah, and to think like, what do you think we should do what's what's a way to reimagine what's going to happen because that will serve them for the rest of their life because they'll mm -hmm. be more active community members they'll be more active citizens they'll be more active in all spaces because they'll realize like we can make change we can do something which is I think one of the most valuable things educators can do yeah yeah oh I love that uh I'm gonna have to check out that case study that sounds fascinating yeah. I would love to read that um I know that sometimes we'll we'll go through similar studies. Uh, for my work, I work with um, really young kids. Um, actually, I stop I stop working with kids when they hit preschool. So it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, um, uh, it's you know prenatal up through up to three years old. Um, and the idea is to foster. Um, to facilitate, you know, stronger attachment between parents and children by promoting parent-child interaction. Um, and, you know, child abuse prevention, um, partnering with parents, helping parents to see themselves as their children's first teacher, um, you know, the expert on their child, and uh, really just to try to foster healthy relationships and, and support parents. Um, and so that can come in, in a lot of different forms. It can be adoptive parents, bio parents, foster parents. It can be single parents, grandparents raising grandchildren. So many different things, so many different situations of caregivers for children. And we often will, you know, 
will present a case, sometimes at work, or we'll read about a case study and discuss it together. And mm. something that is, you know, so interesting to me about all of this is that we, uh, so many of us will come up with a different approach or a different opinion and and like we're adults and we mm -hmm. you know what I mean and we have a different approach and a different opinion about how to do things and so why wouldn't we think that children would have that too why wouldn't we consult them in these decision making processes and why wouldn't we involve them in you know how would this feel what would what would you like to do what do you think we should do um, and like you said, obviously not providing like zero structure and zero safety for them, but giving them more of a voice in those settings could really yeah, change so much. Yeah. I think like recognizing that they have a voice or they have something to contribute and then allowing yeah. them the space to, to bring that in. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, I think it increases empathy when they're thinking about their classmates, they're thinking about their community and it, um, just that sense of like responsibility and contribution that I, I think is so, yeah, so necessary. Mm, yeah. So it sounds like that's something that would need to happen, not just, um, in the classroom with teachers, but that's something that would need to be supported and advocated for by parents, community members, um, in, you know, school board meetings, yeah. uh, all kinds of things. It would need to have sort of a multi-pronged approach to, to developing that, that kind of situation. Um, so the way that I, um, am hearing what you're describing, really involves everyone. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the best way to support it in a larger way. Of course, being in a classroom is like a contained community and you can, you can do that there. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and bringing that home, bringing that elsewhere and, uh, helping families and caregivers and everyone realize like, yeah, involve your children in this way. And I mean, I, I think in some ways folks do it with like, whether it's, um, you know, here are three options of shirts you can wear or here are two options for dinner, which one sounds better. And like, mm, there yeah. is that sense of a little bit more power that we give um, to children, even if it's within like a smaller framework. But mm. I think that constant, what's really, what I love is how much we don't have to have an answer. We can just ask questions and ask good questions. So whether it's, you know, reading a book, um, and you're like debriefing the book or whatever it is, or like, how does, how do you think this character feels? Like, what do you think they could do or what could have been different or how would you have changed it? You know, like you don't have to know, you just set up this space that that welcomes the question yeah yeah oh man I I'm like now I'm thinking about all the ways that I should do this with my children <laughs> <laughs> come back next week to hear the second half of our conversation you've been listening to 99 lead balloons honest talk about shit society ignores special thanks to my guest Katie Noragard for joining me 
For more of Katie's work, you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Miss Katie Sings. Links to Katie's social media and other platforms are also available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stokes Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.